You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood. For the past couple of episodes, we've been talking about the Bible. First, we talked about what the Bible is, that it's this collection of 66 smaller books written by various people over the centuries. And then last week, we looked at the story that the Bible contains, in which God created the universe, then humanity rebelled against his leadership, and then God worked and is working in history, first through the people of Israel and ultimately through Jesus Christ, to reconcile us, spiritually and relationally, back to himself. Before we get into a conversation about who wrote which book and why, which will be next week's topic, I think we should tackle the bigger question, why are these books important? After all, if these books aren't special in any way, if they're just folk stories from a particular culture that were conjured up as one possible set of answers to the mysteries of the universe, then it doesn't matter very much who originally came up with the ideas. The problem is, I'm claiming that the information contained in these pages is special, and that out of all the libraries full of literature that has ever been written in the history of the world, none has the same authority or reliability as this little collection right here. In fact, I'm not just teaching that. I'm essentially betting the course of my life on it, and I wouldn't be willing to do that if I didn't think that these 40-ish writers had a good source for their information. In recent decades, it's become unfashionable, at least in the higher echelons of philosophical society, to believe in what are called meta-narratives. A meta-narrative is a perspective that assigns meaning to the whole of human history, which in turn interprets the significance and meaning of all the smaller stories. Instead, postmodern philosophy tells us that there are no larger stories, there is no objective reality, and there certainly is no such thing as objective purpose or value. Instead, everybody's cultural or even individual answers to the big questions are equally valid, and one person's truth is only as true as the next person's. You probably won't be surprised to learn that biblical Christianity flat-out rejects those facets of postmodernism. We believe that God continues to guide the universe, and that he has the ultimate authority to assign meaning and value to everything. Furthermore, we believe that God wants to be known by humanity, and so he has faithfully revealed who he is and what he's about to specific people throughout history. That all probably sounds controversial to some listeners, and I'll admit that postmodern philosophy does make two great points here. The first is that each of the small stories is worth celebrating. God isn't just interested in the broad strokes of history, with all of us mere mortals being steamrolled out of significance by the onslaught of progress. No, he created each of us as individuals, and he loves all of us. People, individual persons, have value, and that extends to the unique role that each of us plays within the larger story of what God is accomplishing in the universe. The second great point of postmodernism is that no one person or culture can be trusted to come up with absolute truth on their own. The fact is, we have absolutely no right to dictate what's true and false to the rest of humanity. But God does. That's where inspiration comes in. 
So at the end of the day, your perspective on history is probably going to come down to whether or not you believe A, that God exists, and B, that he has the ability to reveal himself faithfully to humans. One of my top rules for this podcast is that you have to draw your own conclusions. But at least for me, I've experienced far too much of God in my own little story to answer anything but yes to those two questions. So that begs the next question. Even if we accept that God has revealed himself to humanity in the hopes of being known by us, where do we find that revelation? What sources do we draw from to know who God is? Perhaps more broadly, what sources of truth have ultimate authority? Over the centuries, Christians have identified four such sources. One is the Bible. A second one is the traditions of the church that were passed down by those who have come before us, particularly the first generations of believers who knew Jesus during his earthly ministry. The other two are our God-given capacity for logical reasoning, and finally, our personal experiences. Those four sources of truth, scripture, tradition, reason, and experience, form the backbone of everything we believe. Frankly, those are the same sources of truth that everyone in the world uses, even if they label them or define them differently. An atheist might rely primarily on scientific journals as their form of scripture, whether they use that word or not, and lots of people consult traditions other than those preserved by the church. But the bottom line is, everything believed by anyone, anywhere, ultimately derives from one of those four sources. Either you read it, or heard it from a source that you trust, or you thought of it or experienced it yourself. That's it. So, what happens when two of those sources of truth disagree? At some point, you're going to run into a situation, for instance, where your personal experience disagrees with your own faculties for understanding the universe. What you think should be true and what's going on in your life don't always match. And in those moments, you have to decide for yourself, is my expectation fundamentally wrong and my experience in this moment defines what's truly real about life? Or is this experience simply unusual, but my original reasoning was correct? The scary thing is that I can't just make a rule that decides between logic and experience for every potential conflict for all time. Sometimes my underlying assumptions in a situation will need to be corrected. But at other times, my logic will be right, but my experience of the situation will be flawed. I can be wrong in a thousand different ways, and that's just in the world of facts and figures, the world of physics. Figuring out what's true or untrue gets even more complicated when we cross over into philosophy, ethics, the realm of value judgments like right and wrong, good and evil, not to mention the incredibly subjective emotional interpretations that each of us assign to seemingly concrete events. That's why, at some point early on in the history of the church, we realized that we needed an unchanging measuring stick, something we could come to with our thoughts and our feelings and even the traditions that we've been taught, and find out, does this measure up? Out of all four sources of truth, only one is unchanging, and that's scripture. Other than being translated into various languages, the Bible is pretty much the same as it was when it was written, so we can faithfully rely on it to communicate the teachings of Jesus and his first followers 
better than all the traditions and experiences since then ever could. Now, doing so can be very difficult because it requires that we humble ourselves, but it's worth it. Every time I've laid aside my immediate feelings about a situation and genuinely asked myself, what does the Bible say? What I've found is that the Bible lines up with reason and the overall experience of my life after all. Similarly, I've certainly come across teachings and traditions, both inside and outside the church, that are in conflict with Scripture, and I have yet to find one that disproves the Bible. There's a Latin phrase that you may hear theologians sometimes use to express their faith in the Bible first and all other sources of truth second. The phrase is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. It's a rallying cry for those who hold this view, but I think it's a bit of a misnomer. The theologians who originally coined that phrase meant scripture alone as the ultimate standard that all other sources of truth are measured against. But in recent years, some have taken it to mean that only scripture contains any truth at all. This is, of course, preposterous. The Bible being first doesn't mean that other sources of truth are invalid. There's still a great deal to learn from our experiences and the wisdom of those who have come before us. And God has given us a wonderful ability to think for ourselves and determine what does and doesn't make sense. But on any given topic, tradition and I may both be dead wrong. The Bible, on the other hand, remains faithful. For that reason, I prefer the term prima scriptura, which means scripture first. Now, at this point, I should clarify that I can think of a thousand bad interpretations of the Bible that instantly come into conflict with both logic and personal experience. But I find that those instances pretty much occur because tradition is held in the highest place instead of scripture. When Christians cling to a tradition that dictates to the Bible what it must and must not mean, or when its simplest, most obvious meaning and interpretation are abused in the service of one person or one group's agenda, that's where so-called inaccuracies and contradictions always spring up. I would actually bet that most of the people who will ever hear this podcast have already been exposed to bad teaching that's supposedly based on the Bible but is actually based on the traditions and assumptions of imperfect human beings who have brought their own personal preferences and beliefs, but then called it God's word. A lot of people have a bitter taste in their mouths about the Bible or even about Christianity itself because of that kind of experience. If that describes you, I'd like to say, first of all, that I'm sorry. It wasn't supposed to be like that. Most Christians say that they believe that the 66 books of the Bible are the ultimate authority, but sadly, many don't actually live as if that's true. Also, broken people are going to do broken stuff, and unfortunately, that applies to Christians and to non-Christians alike. What I'm asking you to do, honestly what this whole podcast is really about, is to separate out what the Bible actually says from what we've been taught. Because when we actually put the Bible in its rightful place, when we go back to the source and submit to its wisdom time and again, we find ourselves back on the right course. The last thing I want to look at in this episode, now that we've talked about the authority of the Bible, is how we've defined what is or isn't in the Bible in the first place. What was the process by which some books were included but others were not? 
The short version is that there was nearly unanimous agreement among the first few generations of Christians that these books were special in some way, that they were useful for teaching and for forming our beliefs about God because we could sense the voice of God speaking through them. Within a few decades of the last portions of the New Testament being written, the question of which of these new letters are scripture and which ones are just letters began to circulate through the church. And several early Christian thinkers compiled their own lists of must-haves for a Christian Bible. As that process continued, the word that came to be used to describe this list of the books that are the revelation of God to the Christian church was the canon. By the way, that's spelled C-A-N-O-N. It's not canon with a double N in the middle because that means artillery. This is the Greek word for a measuring stick or a ruler. The idea is that this is the standard by which all other ideas and teachings are measured. Ultimately, the search for a canon led these early leaders in the church to assemble short statements that summarize what the church believes in a nutshell, which we call the creeds. In fact, the English word creed comes from those documents because they all start with the words, I believe, which in Latin is credo. That's followed by a list of statements that the church believes. Because those creeds were the last thing that the vast majority of Christians agreed on, some people consider them the ultimate authority, followed by the scriptures that those beliefs are in harmony with. Because I don't see any inherent conflict between the two, I view it as a both-and, not an either-or situation. The bottom line is that the church was in remarkable agreement that these are the things we believe, and the Bible consists of the documents that say those things. Now, all that isn't to say, however, that making the decisions between canonical and non-canonical books was easy. There were several books proposed, both for the Old and New Testaments, that didn't quite make the cut. Some of them were in complete agreement with the teaching of the early church, but simply lacked the sense of divine inspiration that others had, while a few of them clearly taught things that the greater Christian community could not endorse because it didn't match the teachings of Jesus, or even of Judaism for that matter. In the Old Testament, first of all, any books that were held up as scripture in Judaism were also considered sacred to Christians since, at its core, Christianity is an offshoot of Judaism. Jesus quoted from the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament, and his followers used it as their Bible, even while they were in the process of writing the New Testament. The story of how these books came to be regarded as the Jewish Bible is long and complicated, so I won't get all into it here. What I will say is that this list had been consolidated and approved, and was used by Jewish communities throughout the known world centuries before Jesus was born. A distinction was drawn between the 39 canonical books which make up the Hebrew Bible and two other sets of literature that had been floating around in the Jewish culture for centuries. One was called the Deuterocanonical Books, or the Second Canon, which some groups considered authoritative in their own right. These are generally good sources of wisdom, and I can recommend reading them and treating them with the same reverence and authority that you would give any other Christian book, without necessarily holding them up as the canon, that measuring rod by which beliefs should be evaluated. The second group from before Christ is called the Apocrypha, which comes from a Greek word meaning hidden away. These were books with dubious authorship, and some of them were known to be just straight-up forgeries. Some of them also contain some pretty weird ideas, 
In the New Testament, a distinction is usually drawn between a few different groups. One is, of course, the canonical list of 27 letters which are included in pretty much any Bible worldwide. That list was finalized in the 4th century AD, but it was proposed in the early 2nd century, so it's far from an arbitrary list. Each of them could be traced to either one of Jesus' original 12 disciples or people who knew them personally. And all 27 New Testament books taught what the early churches taught. In other words, there was complete doctrinal agreement between what these letters said about God and what the church had been taught by Jesus himself and by his first followers. Beyond those 27, we do have a number of other letters written by early Christians to one another, and these are worth studying and cherishing in their own right. A lot of scholars refer to these writers as the early church fathers, and their wisdom, not to mention their perspective on the first couple centuries of the Christian movement, are invaluable to us today. However, alongside the early church fathers, there was a group called the Gnostics. This was a movement on the outskirts of early Christianity that borrowed heavily from Greek and Roman philosophy. They ended up restructuring the story of Jesus according to those systems of thought. The main takeaways from the Gnostic movement were that they believed physical existence was inherently evil, and that God could never have been born as a human being, much less dying and rising from the dead. To the Gnostics, salvation was incumbent upon having the right knowledge so that you could escape from the evil, material world and exist with God as pure thought. They wrote a number of alternative gospels and other works in the first few centuries of the church, but their philosophy was opposed by everyone who had a relational connection back to Jesus, including those of his original twelve disciples who lived long enough to see this controversy come to light in the first place. In recent years, there's been kind of a resurgence of interest in the apocryphal and Gnostic works that were excluded from the Bible by the earliest believers. Many people are looking for a fresh take on Jesus and on the message of Christianity. I believe largely that's happened because toxic, false Christianity and its interpretations of the Bible have been a destructive force in so many people's lives. A lot of people want Jesus, but they've grown to reject the Bible. I can't blame them for coming to those conclusions, but I do disagree with them precisely because the Jesus described in the Bible in the 66 canonical books that make up the Old and New Testaments is nothing like the often broken religious and cultural system that frequently bears his name. The Jesus of the Bible already is a fresh take, and I'm looking forward to continuing to discover him with you. I hope you'll join me next week for a related discussion on who actually wrote the Bible. And please feel free to contact me with any examples you have where truth and scripture have seemed at odds. I'd love to do a series on those. Meanwhile, as always, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.